Amen. Well, I've, I've titled the message, A Person with an Argument Has Nothing Over a Person with Experience. But look at under there, it says dot, 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 until there's a word from the Lord, a word from God. And uh, so I want to um, kind of walk two lines here as a theme this morning. Let me ask a couple of questions to kind of get you thinking about this. First of all, is all knowledge truth? Okay, not all knowledge is truth. So is there a statement, and some of you probably maybe lined up one, one way or another, is experience always better than learning or knowledge? Let me ask it another way, it kind of gets you thinking. Let's say that you're responsible for a child that has to have a very delicate heart surgery, and you want two opinions, so you go to the first surgeon, he's fresh out of medical school, he's not done an operation yet before, but he's gotten straight A's through medical school. Your second surgeon is an old crafty guy, he hasn't been in school in a long time, but he's done hundreds of these surgeries. Who might you choose? I would put a caveat in there. What does the Lord say? When I presented this to Mike and Sarah, they said, well, what if he's got some new techniques out of medical school? So, yes, I mean, I, when I've been in places where I need someone with experience, I mean, if you're in a foxhole and you're about ready to face a fierce enemy, would you like to be there with a green recruit? Or would you like to be with somebody who's got some battle scars, who's been through some of these things? So there's, there's, there's this balance, if you can think of it, between experience and knowledge. If you can think of it this way, um, suppose that you're driving down the road, the one guardrail is your experience, and the other guardrail is the knowledge of truth. Your GPS better be the Holy Spirit. Tells you to turn left, turn right. You'll get to your destination if you got the Holy Spirit with you in the midst of it. Because there are times, and let me give you some scripture around this. Let's let's open, if you will, to Acts chapter 27. In Acts chapter 27, you may recall that Paul is headed to Rome. He must appear before the emperor, and to get to Rome, he's been assigned a Roman guard, and they've got a long boat ride journey through several different situations, and when Paul sails for Rome, this is Acts 27, I'll read out of the New Living Translation, it came time to set sail in verse 1, Paul and several other prisoners were placed in the custody of a Roman officer. You jump down, it says, in part of their journey, it was slow sailing, verse 7, after great difficulty, we learned near Snidus that the wind was against us, so we sailed across to Crete, along the sheltered coast of the island, past the Cape of Salmon. We struggled along the coast with great difficulty, finally arrived at Fair Havens, near the town of Lassie. We had lost a lot of time, and the weather was becoming dangerous for sea travel because it was late in the fall. Paul spoke to the ship's officers about this. Now, get a, get a picture of this. Here's Paul, a prisoner, and he's talking to the ship's officers, and he renders his opinion. He says to them, verse 10, Men, he said, I believe there's trouble ahead for us. If we go on, shipwreck, loss of cargo, danger to our lives as well. But the officer in charge of the prisoners listened more to the ship's captain than, and to the owner than to Paul. Now, does that make sense? If you've got seasoned, experienced sailors that said, we can do this, they're the ship's owner and the cap, and there's Paul, he's, a, he's in chains, and he's also one, he's a, he's a preacher, and he's on his way to Rome. Paul says, I, I, don't, I don't think we should do this. It makes a lot of sense that they would listen to the experienced travelers who have owners of the ship aboard. But what happens later 
They now start to experience a nor'easter. They get stuck in it. The ship runs gale. They're throwing things overboard. All hope is gone, it says in verse 20. Until at last, all hope was gone. Verse 21. No one had eaten for a long time. Finally, Paul calls the crew together. (laughs) You get a picture of that, right? We know there's over 250, actually 276 total on this ship. When I shipped out with uh, TSES-4, my first boat uh, in Merchant Marine, we had 400 sailors, of which 250 of them were cadets. And I'll tell you, I was a, I was a mug. I was an underclassman, my first cruise. And this is where experience versus knowledge matters. The way they trained us in, for Coast Guard license, you had to stand every watch and you had to both sit for a written license as well as practicals. And so... I was an engineer, so I'm below decks. I'm learning how to run the boilers and the feed system and all that. And the deckies are up above, and they're assigned. So you had a first-class cadet who'd been on three cruises. He's going to sit for license. He's now assigned to a first officer who is really in charge of the cruising of the ship. So they lay out. We're sitting in um, the East River. We're going to go up the East River to Long Island Sound and cross over to Italy. And as they plot the course, the captain decided, we got thousands of cadets, my girlfriend, my wife was there, we weren't married yet, and everybody's there, we're going to go out in low tide. Not really a good idea, but hey, we're on a schedule, and the captain of the ship said, plot the course. So they decide to go up the middle of the East River. When they get the Coast of Geodetic Survey maps out, which are brand new, The stepping stones that had been there on the three previous cruises, which are obstacles in the middle of the East River, they're not on the charts. The first-class cadet, who's not licensed, says, Sir, I'm concerned. I have have run the ship, part of the ship, and and been part of the crew here, but we, we never go down. We have to avoid the stepping stones. He says, Well, there's no stepping stones on this map. Plot the course. It's low tide. Make your way center of the river. And we're all on there, dress whites, all the girlfriends, all the family. Yay! We're all on one side of the ship, and we're going down, and we're waving goodbye, and all of a sudden, <laughs> we almost fall overboard. We hit something really bad. So we stop. Captain says, what was that? They figure out what happened. says, well, they check out the ship. Looks like everything's fine. We don't want to go back to port. What an embarrassment. Make your way. We get halfway across the ocean. I'm sitting in class. All of a sudden, all the power goes off. All the lights go out. Diesel generator starts. We're dead in the water in the middle of the ocean. And we look back, and we're leaving a trail of Bunker Sea oil at the back of the ship. I'm like, oh, my goodness. Lieutenant Nelson, he was our second engineer, they go down, they sound the double bottoms, find out we got seawater in all the central tanks, so there's double bottom. We left a trail of oil across, halfway across the ocean, but it was a slow trickle. So they contact the Coast Guard. We decide what to do. They shift the boilers' uh, supply lines to the outer tanks, and we make it into Cittadavecchia, Italy, and the Coast Guard is there for an investigation. How is it that you would take a ship with 400 crew members and run it aground And they got problems because now the survey maps are wrong, which were posted by the government. You've got a captain who decided in peril, I mean, what are you going to do? We get to Siddhavekia, they send the divers over the side, 110-foot gash down the center center line of the ship. It's lucky we we had seawater in all the tank, but they... It was a wonderful time in Siddhavekia, Italy. We were grounded there for a while. (laughs) They went and welded all the ship. What's the point? The point is, you might have knowledge and you might have experience, but there are times when if you're leaning to one side or the other, if you don't have the Lord in the middle of your decision-making process, it can be very, very perilous. And so I want us to look at experience versus knowledge, truth. And there are boundaries to knowledge and experience, both, if you like it, the, the tension let me give you some more scripture. I won't turn here at this point. But you remember in 2 Timothy, 
It says they were ever learning, but they were never able to come to the knowledge of truth. Ever learning. In fact, it says in Psalm 14.1 and Psalm 53.1, their exact wording, it says how it is that some men become fools when they believe there is no God, but they are truly wise to those who seek Him. Atheists are a bunch of fools. They're going to find out one day how foolish they were, right? Now, let's turn to this scripture, though. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians 10. A familiar scripture um, in spiritual warfare. He says this, we know that the weapons that we fight with are not carnal, that they're mighty to the pulling down of demonic strongholds. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3. New Living Translation says it this way, we're human, but we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons, not the worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy the false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God, and we capture rebellious thoughts. King James says, the weapons of warfare not carnal, mighty to the pulling down of strongholds, means fortresses in the Greek. Verse 5 says, casting down imaginations. There is some vain imagination stuff going on all over this media right now. Casting down vain imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing it into captivity, every thought to the obedience of Christ. Now turn back to Romans chapter 1 for a moment. I want to continue to unpack this thought. This thought that people think they're wise and they think they're smart, they're ever learning, but if you don't have God in the midst of it, you are absolutely going to get shipwrecked. It says in Romans 1, This whole thing was how they continue to follow after sin, making idols of things, following after immorality. And as they do this, their mind gets more and more confused and filled with chaotic thinking, demonic thoughts, the strongholds, the fortresses that Paul speaks of in that 2 Corinthians 10, vain imaginationing, worshiping everything except the one who created it all. And this is what he says in verse 28, Romans 1, 28. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them and their foolish thinking, and he let them do things they should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wicked sin, greed, hatred, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. Is there anything left? They're backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, boastful. They invent new ways of sinning. They disobey their parents. They refuse to understand. They break their promises. They're heartless. They have no mercy. Wow. King James, in that verse 28, he says, Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, He gave them over to a reprobate mind. Reprobate mind means predestined to damnation. Woohoo! That's a wow. An unprincipled sinner. So when we look at knowledge, yes, we should pursue wisdom and knowledge, but it's not all truth. Who is the truth? He's the truth, right? He's the way. He is the one. He's the promise. And so when we look at this, another scripture that um might help, I'll just paraphrase it. In 2 Kings 18, remember when the world power Assyria comes after Judah and Hezekiah. So here you got this little nation of Judah. The other 10 tribes have already gone into rebellion. They've been conquered. You only have Judah and Benjamin left. And at this point, here's young Hezekiah. And in 2 Kings 19, Sennacherib. King of Assyria. I love that. Sennacherib. It even sounds evil, right? Sennacherib, right? He's such a mocker of God. He has conquered the active world at that point. He's conquered one nation after another. He is the superpower. They end up in Jerusalem, 
and they surround him, and there's Hezekiah and the band of the tribe, and they said, oh, woe is us. They even send a decree, and they translate it in Hebrew to declare to the Hebrew people that are behind the wall in Jerusalem, now surrounded by the superpower, with over 200, 300,000, they estimate, Syrian soldiers around them. And Isaiah the prophet pops up, and he says, don't be afraid. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob will deliver you. So they have a word from the Lord. In all the natural, can you imagine the, the Israeli generals? Uh, what do you want us to do? Pray. Oh, pray, yeah. I'm sure they believed in God. But in all fairness, it looked pretty bleak. So they start praying. Hezekiah says, we got a word from the Lord. Let's start fasting. Our experience says we're toast. But our God says we are under his cover. They start praying, and guess what happens? The Lord sends an angel that kills 185,000 of them in one battle. They don't even lift a finger. Sennacherib is so discouraged, he goes, we got to pack up. He gets a word back from the other side where he's from. So you better get back home. As he gets back home, God also gave a promise, I'll take care of this mocker. His two sons assassinate him. And Judah is preserved. So when we battle this tension between experience and knowledge, revelation, let's, let's unpack this a little more. If you look at your outline, I love the theme that the team brought today about joy. They, I don't think they knew this, but... Um, actually, I want to dig into this because I believe the experience, the ingredients of experience, if you look at that center of the handout, experience plus suffering brings revelation. But you can't get there without joy. What is the, di- let me say that again, experience of life. Guess what? Trials are going to find you whether you like it or not, all right? They're going to find, life's experience is going to find you. And you're going to have suffering. He said, that's why we're told over and again, Peter says it, Titus says it, Jude says it. Why do you, James says, why do you consider it that you would not have suffering? What, what book are you reading, basically? If Jesus learned obedience by the things he suffered, I don't really understand that scripture. The Son of God learned obedience by the things he suffered. Come on. He was the God-man, fully God, who laid down his God powers, filled with a Holy Spirit who could model for us that a man, even though he was God, without the supernatural empowerment of God, unless the Holy Spirit were in him, that's why he says, you go and do what I do. You have everything that I have. Experience plus suffering brings revelation. But you got to have joy in the midst of it. Well, what's the difference between joy and happiness? How does joy become more of life's focus than the pursuit of happiness? How does the joy of life become more of a focus than happiness? Even the Declaration of Independence says, in the pursuit, all men are created equal, right? And they have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But if your whole life is about the pursuit of happiness, you're going to end up in a sad place. Because happiness is dependent upon happenings. Everyone wants happiness, but it's elusive. The lifelong pursuit of money, possessions, toys. But toys rust and health deteriorates. Loved ones die, and people betray us. And if you're let, looking at happiness as your anchor, you end up in a bankrupt place. In fact, suffering without Christ, listen to me carefully, suffering without Christ can result in bitterness, cynical activities, cynical thoughts, anger, and hopelessness. Why do we have such a prevalent, Suicide rate going on right now. Because hopelessness, bitterness, 
They're not anchored in the, in the place of Christ. It's that place. But life that brings all the fire, that tests your faith and purifies you at the same time, if you'll do that suffering and experience that in the joy of the Lord, he'll give you both strength and he'll give you revelation of intimacy with him. I wish there was another way, but I don't see any other way to find that without placing Christ in the midst of your suffering experiences to find that revelation of intimacy. That's why a person that's experienced God in that place can outdo every argument that comes against you. I remember an argument after my little baby. It's hard to see Sarah as a little baby, less than one, in a hospital being intravenously fed to keep her alive. I'm not even saved yet. My wife has just gotten saved. I have knowledge of God. Mom did a really good job of getting us to church. I have knowledge of God, and I prayed, you know, my prayer once in a while. When someone came to me and said later in life, when I said, you know, God's a healer, he goes, God doesn't do that today. I said, really? Well, then you explain to me how when my daughter was laying there being intravenously fed and there was no hope and the doctors had come back and they ran every test they could. They went this way, they went that way, and they said, we don't know what's wrong with her, but we can keep her alive by intravenously feeding her. And I had it out with God that night. You know, it wasn't very pretty. I cussed him out and said, I've heard from my mother that you're a good and loving God, and I don't see anything good or loving in the midst of this experience, and right now I'm suffering, and they have just told me they don't know what to do other than keep her alive. So if you're really the God that my mother says you are, then you heal my daughter, and if you don't, I won't tell you what I said. But God's good with that. He's good with that. It's, I mean, it was as raw and as real as it gets. If you heal her, I'm yours. If you don't, well, I get dragged to a healing service. A word from the pastor. He stops in the middle of his sermon. As if I stopped right now and I called one of you out of the crowd. And this was the word he said. Pulled us out of the crowd. My wife on in back says, You've been praying for a young child, didn't say daughter, young child, and that child's being healed of an intestinal disorder right now. My wife hits the ground, knees crying, tears running, and I'm the guy next to my our, our lay, lay pastor, he became a Baptist pastor later, Bill Marshall. They're on the ground praising God, and I'm like, what is this? Did you tell him, how did the usher know that? Did you tell an usher that we had a prayer request? Did you write that down? Oh, what a man of faith. My wife said, that's the Holy Ghost. I'm like, whatever. The next day we go in and we meet with Dr. Nitchman, our pediatrician. And my wife says, Jesus healed our baby last night. And he looked at her like I looked at her. What's the point? My wife signed all the releases, brought the child home, violated the rules, fed the baby, and Sarah was healed since that day forward. Now, all the natural side of this had a word from the Lord that oversaw and superseded. And so, in our arrogance, if we are suffering, we can get angry at God and we can get bitter at God. Or you can find the joy of the Lord in the midst of it and have a revelation of truth. And unfortunately, every one of us will walk this line. Every one of us. Because at the end of this thing, he's God and you're not. Nor am I. And it's at that place where did you trust me in the midst of your fire? This has been the hardest year of our lives. The last six months have been the hardest year that we've ever faced. But in the midst of it, we see the goodness of God. I don't know how he works it all out. I don't know. But I do know that he's good. And as Sarah sang from her heart this morning about the joy of the Lord, that was the deep well breaking. That there is a God who in Israel, he's a God of this earth. He's a God who rules and reigns in our hearts. And so, 
in the pool. <laughs> yes. It's in the presence of the Lord. That's that intimate revelation of God. Thank you, Richard. Amen. Turn with me to Philippians. This is such an amazing book. It's actually called the Joy Book. Now, I didn't realize they were going to do those. I didn't know what the song set was, but I love it. It's just the Lord knows it, right? In fact, Paul writes these four chapters to the church at Philippi. He's in prison in Rome. And he mentions it 16 times the word joy is here in four chapters. And let's just kind of flip through a couple of interesting verses here. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul writes, verse 9, I pray that your love will overflow more and more and that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. For I want you to understand what really matters so that you'll live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ, for this will bring much glory and praise to God. Verse 20, he says, For I fully expect and hope that I will never be ashamed, but that I will continue to hold be bold for Christ as I have in the past, and I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ whether I live or die. For me to living means living for Christ. Dying is even better. All right, come on. But if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ, so I really don't know which is better. I'm torn between these two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me, but for your sake, it's better that I continue to live. Then he goes on and he deals with citizenship of heaven. Verse 27, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven. What does that look like? Conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then whether I come and see you again or hear only about, I will know that you're standing together with one spirit, one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. Don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them they're going to be destroyed but that you're going to be saved by God himself. For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. The privilege of suffering for him. The privilege of suffering for him. Oh, we like this, this whole gospel about everything's cool and good. It's not there's two sides of this. Having this attitude, chapter 2, verse 1, is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from His love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy, agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and one purpose. Verse 3, now this, this, this throws me for a loop. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress each other. Don't look out for only your own interests, but for the interests of others. Now chapter 3, this is the one that really rocks my boat. Look at verse 10. Now let's look at verse 8 first. Yes, everything else is worthless. He talks about all of his accomplishments, all of his past. He calls it a bunch of dung. Everything is worthless when compared to the infinite value, the infinite value, it says in the Greek, the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For this sake I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law, rather I become the righteousness through faith in Christ. For God's way of thinking, making us right with himself, depends on faith. Now listen to this. I want you to know Christ, Gnosko, to really know him, and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. 
I want you to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. This is Paul's prayer. I want you to experience the mighty power, but this is what he says, I want to suffer with him and share in his death so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. You talk about, I don't think most of us pray that kind of prayer. But we know, we know that Paul was beheaded and he did die. On the same day, the theologians tell us, historians tell us, the same day that Peter was crucified upside down. I want to know the power of Christ, the same power that raised him from the dead, in one way or another, that I might experience him. So what's the message? I don't want to be too heavy on you, but I... I believe we can embrace the suffering with experience and the joy of the Lord can be our strength. You get to that place, and here's the real battleground. I've been there for six months. Death of my son, the death of my brother, the death of Mike's sister Maria, two cancer surgeries, the death of my granddaughter last week, miscarriage. Three and a half months after my daughter had to go for surgery, for gallbladder surgery. So it's been a pretty rough six months. And I don't have all the answers to all that. But I do know that God is good. And in the midst of all that, I've seen such an outpouring of grace, goodness, protection, covering. What happens like in a storm with Florence it has a single point of purpose. We come together to help those. It's, forget about your need. In fact, some of the first responders that we took care of, they hadn't even had been home to take care of their own houses. And so they're out pouring out. And then we show up. And I, I had grown men cry. One guy had an oak tree this big on his house. He's disabled, has, needs two hip replacements. I don't know if I know he's a believer because we prayed for him and asked him if he knew Christ. But he had called into the radio, uh, the TV station, the night that we were there as pastors taking call-ins. And I made a list of all those that were struggling. I said, well, we have the call-in. Call FEMA. Call this emergency number. Call. But if you don't get them, you call this number at the church. So he called back and says, they can't get to me. We're washed out at 421. And you've got to go up to Burgaw to come down to get to us probably take you 45 minutes to an hour to get to me. But I got this tree on my house. My roof is going to leak. The rain's coming. I got another tree down. I can't even stand up straight. So we're coming. We're coming. The Dream Center showed up. I took eight of them. Daniel Christian, myself, uh, one of the Spanish men, Manuel, Manuel, we got there. I was like, man, how are we going to get this tree was this big on the man's house. I'm like, there, whew. So we rigged Daniel. He's amazing. We rigged up my truck with a chain and get in there and drive under the tree. We'll make sure it doesn't fall before you get under it. We'll get there and let's pull this tree and we'll cut it. We'll cut it. Put tension on it. Praise God. It's good to have guys from Alaska with you when you're doing that kind of stuff. They know something. And so he just cried. He goes, thank you for coming. Nobody else could come. So, Lord, I just thank you that you focus us and you let us become the hands and feet. There's something really amazing. Everyone who came and helped out, whether you helped your neighbor next door, this, something goes on on the inside. Give and you receive. Get out. So get beyond your experiences that are self-centered. Let me finish this and I'll just close down on this. When you look at the, the outline, it says, your experience really becomes the tested knowledge of Christ. It becomes mixed with your skill set. But suffering in faith has to be proven. It's the fire test of life. And that revelation of Christ, I don't know how you get it any other way. The man who argued with me that healing is not for today, I told him, oh, really? You need to meet my daughter. 
You can never tell me that God doesn't heal. I saw it with my own eyes. And then as we went to the nations and I saw the blind eyes open, I saw the tumors disappeared, I saw the crippled demoniacs get out of their chairs and walk and proclaim Christ. Don't tell me Christ is not full of living power. You can't tell me that. I've seen it with my own eyes. You may have an argument that tells me, well, it's the cessationist stuff that's not for today. Baloney. The same Jesus who raised Christ from the dead lives in me. Greater works shall we do, John 14, than he did. So this is the work that he said. But there'll be times. Let me just finish with one more quick testimony. <laughs> we had started going to the nations, and this one came to mind. I, in my book that I wrote, I, I went back and read it this morning, and, and I wrote this, and yet I got tears in my eyes because I remembered some of the specific moments that occurred. We had just gotten back from Mozambique. We had taken a team of 16 to Mozambique, and Randy Clark said, I would like you to come. I need, this is when he, he, de- he, he labeled Global River the armor division of Global Awakening. And the setup on this one was we were about to go to Brazil, to go to Belém, Brazil. And in Belém, there was 74 square churches under Pastor Paulo. He was the head of the 70 churches there. And he invited Randy and Bill Johnson to come. He, they had come the year before, and healings broke out. Have you ever gone anywhere with Randy and Bill? Healings just break out. They have that anointing. It's part of the gifting that's listed in 1 Corinthians and in Romans. And every time we'd come under, there's amazing giftings that run with them. And so they had been there, but there was so much disruption in the crowd from all the demonic outbreaks that they couldn't even preach the word. It would have been more effective if they had so. Randy thought about that for a whole year. He says, here's what we're going to do. Tom's team, they like to do this deliverance stuff. I don't know if we like to, but we were doing it by, by recourse. It had to happen. People are manifesting or attacking you. You're going to do something about it in Jesus' name. And so we had gotten back. He says, I want you to take the lead for this. We're going to have 20,000 people come together in the soccer stadium under all the four squares churches, and I've had 800 of my intercessors from the 20,000 that will be there that have fasted for one month They're all going to be wearing black pants and a white shirt. And when everyone piles into the soccer stadium, they're going to lay hands on them, all 800 of the fasted intercessors. It was was incredible. I said, really? Fasted 30 days? Wow, okay, yeah. Well, I prayed and I said, Lord, do you want us? And Randy said, when I landed in Brazil, I wish I'd gotten a call earlier. When I landed in Brazil, Randy called me. He said, I need you to set up and run the deliverance tents for us. We're going to have 20,000 that had come together in the soccer stadium. I said, now, that would have been interesting, I guess. But two days before I left, one of my key intercessors called me crying on the phone, awakened in the middle of the night, said, Satan is going to try to kill you on this trip. Be very careful. I told my wife that. She said she prayed for me. As I'm getting ready to leave, another intercessor who didn't know that one called me up and says, I'm going to fast for you for the next three days, and I will pray for you until you return. Three hours a day, I will cover you and bask you in prayer. I said, whoa, I love these intercessors. I didn't like the one about the death, but I like that. Somebody would take that kind of sacrifice for me? Wow. And she prayed for me. Praise God. Well, I get to Brazil. Randy says, run the deliverance. I said, man, this is probably where Satan's going to try to kill me. In pride or arrogance, I can say, yeah, we'll do it. And there Satan will get me. Uh, Randy, unless Paulo himself, Pastor Paulo, oversees this whole thing, if he says do it, then I'll pray about it. Well, Randy takes me to lunch with Pastor Paulo, and Paulo says, we don't know how to do deliverance. I understand that you do. <laughs> we need you to run the deliverance tents for us. I call back to my senior pastor, who rarely would pick up the phone, He picks it up from the call from Brazil, and I said to Pastor Steve, I said, Steve, I got this wild word. You're my covering. The board has sent me out on this trip. I got 15 of the team from the church here. I don't want anybody hurt. They want us to run the deliverance tent. And he goes into a prophetic word, and he says, you've been created for such a time as this. Go and do it. I'm like, now I got my senior pastor. I got the apostolic leader. I got the leader of the country who oversees. Now it's disobedience. But God, you got a strategy. I go back to the hotel room, get on my face. God, I'm really scared. Satan wants to kill me. I don't want to hurt him. 
and the Lord downloaded to me a strategy. He said, I want you to walk a Jericho march around the entire soccer stadium, and I want you to anoint with oil, and I want you to plead the blood of Jesus to break witchcraft. I did not know that a Makumba witch is assigned to that soccer stadium. But the Lord did. Gave us a strategy, told us. Anyway, long story short, the night that we're starting deliverance, he had warned me that there would be people that would come in for deliverance that are there not to really be delivered, but to get more power. Matthew 12 says they get cast out and then they get more demons. And so we were careful. We're praying things are happening. Here's the one that we were following our model and people were getting healed and delivered every night. Amazing things. You can read it in, in the book. But this particular night, Randy Clark had a healing tent and we had our deliverance tent. All those that needed physical healing pour into the healing tent and Randy Clark had a translator named Clarice, amazing young woman, great translator. In the midst of this, this woman comes up, 15-year-old girl. She'd been a prostitute. She was working the street outside, and she wasn't getting any business. Praise God, it's a Christian conference. <laughs> she comes into the tent for healing because she's got all these stomach issues. Randy lays hands on her. She hits the ground and starts vomiting red blood. And Randy says, if there was a 911, I would have dialed 911. It freaked him out. It was a, pile, a puddle of red blood. And Clarice said, no, 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 no. I've seen this before. This is Makumba. She has eaten food dedicated to idols, and it has cursed her stomach and her digestive tract. Can I pray, Randy? Yes. She gets down, and in Portuguese, she speaks in Jesus' name, shuts it down, breaks the power of the demonic. Clarice catches herself and Clarice says to her, can you come to the deliverance tent tomorrow night? You have something going on that needs to be taken care of by Jesus. That night, she gets permission from Randy to go from the healing tent to the deliverance tent. I set up all our stations. We had groups of translators and people coming in that are being manifested, manifesting in demonic. There Clarice comes, and here comes Anna Paula. She walks in, and as soon as Clarice lays hands on her, now she had Confess Christ, receive salvation the night before. She's tormented all night long. She comes in. She wants deliverance and healing. When Clarice lays hands on her, she hits the ground, and she goes into a comatose state. No human personality. You can't ra Clarice tried, tried, tried to get her to, to respond. She finally came to me, and she goes, I've seen deliverances. I've, I, I, can't, I can't reach the, I can't get her to confess. I, I don't know what to do. I said, I don't know what to do either. It's not following our model. <laughs> so what do you do with your experience doesn't work? Why don't you go to the one who's the source of all knowledge? I went off. I said, Lord, I don't know what to do, but l let me make sure. She came here for salvation. She came here for deliverance. You would not turn her away. I don't know what to do. What do you want to do? He says, hand-to-hand -hand combat. And I'm going, hand-to-hand -hand combat? God, I don't even know what that means. But I felt that meant close encounters, real close. I gathered seven of our team members and Clarice, and we gathered around. And I'm just reporting. This is God's honest truth. You can talk to the people who were there. When we had her laid out, she was stone cold, almost it was 100% humidity in the Amazon region. We're all sweating, drenched. She's cold as a cucumber, laid out, flat as a board. And she starts to elevate. I got seven people sitting on her. I'm just reporting. You could say that guy's weird. Live audience, I'm just telling you what I saw. We took power. At that point, this close encounter, as I said, so I, I commanded every spirit that I could think of witchcraft, prostitution, lust, and pimps that brought her, beat her up. I, I, I went after it all. At the end of that, I said, Lord, we're still making no progress. She doesn't respond. We... And the Lord said, pray in tongues. When you don't know how to pray, having all to do, stand. Pray in the Spirit. I said, okay, guys, if you've got a prayer language, open up. We went and started praying in tongues. All of a sudden, in perfect English, Anna Paula's eyes open up. She turns to my Baptist friend, Mark, who'd just gotten baptized in the Holy Ghost on that trip, and turns to him and says, 
I'm going to kill you when I come out, and I'm going to kill her. Perfect English. Closes his eyes. Mark goes, I said, Mark, they lie. Mark, they're liars, deceivers. Mark is still alive. I talked to him the other day, by the way. So, okay. So, pray in tongues, guys. Pray in tongues. We start praying in tongues. A few minutes later, perfect English opens up her eyes and says, it's getting very, in a male voice, it's getting very hot in here. I said, awesome. Crank it. By that time, everybody, I mean, it's going wild, right? And what happens? Within a few minutes, that spirit opens up his eyes, looks at me, and he says, we're leaving. Boom, leaves. She crumples. Her eyes open in perfect Portuguese. She tells Clarice, it's gone. It's gone. Now, when your experience does not match up, there is one you need to go to, the teacher, the one who is able, the Holy Spirit. James says, if you lack wisdom, you ask the Holy Spirit. But you got to position yourself in the midst of it. And it's really difficult when you're in the midst of the battle or you're in the midst of the suffering. It's sometimes very hard to hear God. You've got to find a place, and that comes from intimacy in the revelation. That's where the real rubber meets the road. And all I can say is, God wants to grab a people group that are knowing who He is. They're not afraid of the suffering. They know it comes with the turf. It's going to come with the turf. It's part of who you are. It's the qualification in the fire. James tells us, Peter tells us, when you have suffered for Him, it gives Him the glory if you don't become bitter and angry and unbelieving, full of doubt. Now, you will in your grief cycle. I've been there. When you get in that place, you will question. But God is faithful. So let's end. If you'll stand with me. I just want to pray a revelation prayer, an impartation prayer. That infinite knowledge, that value of knowing Christ as Jesus our Lord. I believe we're on the eve of something that both for as a country as an impact to nations, as an impact to a region. We still have a prophetic word that we've been praying into that God is going to pour it out on southeastern North Carolina. And something greater than any of the Welsh revival stuff, we're going to see it. When I see pastors gathering together, they met Friday night, a group of pastors with FEMA and the other groups. The pastors are having another meeting. Wednesday, we're having another group meeting. As we pour out together, breaking down the barriers that keep us divided, focused on one thing, let's help God's people and those that are not God's people to know who he is because you come and you clear off a house or you give them food or you help them out or you pray for them and there's no agenda other than to love them. It's not what you're gonna do for me. It's what Jesus did through us. That is the value of the gospel. So, Lord, I pray now. Why don't you grab a hand across this, this church? Let's, it says, if two or three of you will agree, it shall be done for them. Lord, I pray for an impartation of the wisdom and the revelation of God. You promised through Paul that you would do greater than we would even pray or think. We've prayed some really big things and thought some really wild things, God, but it says, I will do exceedingly abundantly above all you'd ever ask or even think according to the power that is within you. The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in you. He rules and reigns if you will let him have full control. God, I ask that you'd come and you would show us through the magnificent power of your love to set aside the soulish, fleshly desires that rage against the Spirit. Taking up our cross daily to follow you. It's in this place 
that you'd unify a body of believers across a region that would see revival come. So, Lord, we want to pray like Jude prayed. These things happen, and there's so many that are still suffering and sitting in shelters who've lost everything, who are wondering, they've lost their jobs, they've lost possessions. Some have even lost their loved ones. There's no answer except that Christ can do all things. And he works at all things together for good to those who love him and are called by his purpose, his will, his purpose, not ours. So I want to agree with Jesus' half-brother Jude who wrote this. You, dear friends, build each other up in your most holy faith. Pray in the power of the Holy Spirit and await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ who will bring you eternal life. In this way, you will keep yourself safe in God's love. You must show mercy to those whose faith is wavering. Rescue others by snatching them from the flames of the judgment. Show mercy still to others, but do it with great caution, hating the sin that contaminates their lives. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before his presence of glory with exceeding great joy to the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever and all said amen. Be blessed. Have a great day. Don't forget... 2.30 to 3.30, we will be across from the health center, the uh, health department, from 2.30 to 3.30, if you can join us to, to pray silently for life. God bless you. See you Wednesday night also for Mary Esther's teaching.